0: energy is the mandate for all companies and all sectors across the globe. And that means the transition to greener and cleaner energy sources is at the forefront of manufacturers' discussions these days. Energy has always been key to the continued success of the manufacturing sector. To that end, the industry has relied upon fossil fuels forever. However, with the various issues behind those energy sources, the industry has to move in different directions. Yes, there are renewables, and they will be a part of the mix, but hydrogen and electrification, while already in use, are becoming larger and more important entities as energy sources. What does the energy transition mean for safety professionals? Well, The safety end result will not differ because whatever process you're employing to produce a product will essentially remain the same. No matter what, if you make gasoline, you'll still make gasoline. But the safety component that goes into producing the energy to produce the gasoline is going to change. While the reliance on fossil fuels is not going away soon, it is going away. So now's the time to understand the energy transition and how it relates to safety. And there's no one better to talk to me about that on our Today with ISS Source podcast than Steve Elliott, Senior Offer Director, Safety and Critical Control at Schneider Electric. Steve, welcome. Thanks, Greg. It's wonderful to be here. I'm just going to get right into it here. The move now is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and electrification will do that. But how will that happen?
1: Greg, more electrification means that we are going to need to produce more electricity than we currently have. There are many different ways that we can do this. The first thing is to look at the current sources of electricity generation and how we can decarbonize those. The electrical sector itself is a significant source of greenhouse gas emissions. So shifting to renewable energy sources like wind, solar, hydro, can significantly reduce those emissions. So as renewable energy sources become more widespread, as you quite rightly said, the need for fossil-based power plants will decrease, and that in turn will reduce the carbon emissions associated with electricity generation itself. So while the electricity generation sector needs to look at itself, it does lead us into the energy transition and the dependency on renewable energy sources. Now the talk of renewable energy sources, solar wind, tidal hydro is not new, but the intermittent nature of these sources makes them very challenging, certainly in heavy process industries, that by their very nature are energy hungry, and they need constant feeding 24/7 there is a lot of focus and there is certainly a very high expectation and therefore attention on hydrogen as the answer to the energy crisis to decarbonize applications where those renewable sources struggle now the good news obviously is we don't need to sell everybody on the importance or the value of hydrogen. It is abundant. It is flexible. We can transport it short, long distances in small or large volumes. It can be stored for a long time. So there is a lot of attractiveness to hydrogen. We won't discuss that. But what I will add is that the use of hydrogen isn't necessarily new. So for me, based here in Europe, about 10 million tons of hydrogen Is already used in the European Union. Now, the petrochemical industry is currently one of the largest consumers and producers of hydrogen. And so the main users being refining and fertilizers account for approximately 85% of that. Petroleum refiners, they've been using hydrogen to lower the sulfur content of fuels. The chemical industry, they use hydrogen as a feedstock to produce ammonia. It's used in the production of methanol, which is then used as a chemical building block to produce other compounds, fuels, and additives. So petroleum and chemical already use it, so do refining, so does the refining industry. Hydrogen is used in the conversion of crude oil for breaking large molecules into the smaller molecules that we can then get higher value from, so the hydrocracking process. Also removing contaminants such as sulfur, nitrogen, metals, from crude oil fractions, so hydro treating, and then even stabilizing some of the chemical products, so hydrogeneration. generation. So beyond its use and its preferred use as a chemical raw material, hydrogen can also be used to replace some of the natural gas that we use in furnaces through natural gas or hydrogen mixtures, as these will release less CO2 hydrogen is already established, but more in the manufacturing process than an energy resource. Now, that then leads us to some more sort of domestic type applications, not just heavy process, but electrifying transportation. This, I think, is probably the big shift that we are all seeing in our day-to-day lives, shifting from fuel based to electric. So transportation, shifting from gasoline and diesel reduces carbon emissions that come out of the exhaust, out of the tailpipe. But the generation of those, again, is also associated with some of the renewable energy sources. We're also seeing hydrogen as a viable alternative fuel source. So at the recent Winter Olympic Games in China, they had a fleet of more than 600 fuel cell vehicles that were used in the competition zone. They were all fueled by green hydrogen. So transportation is not just electric vehicles, but hydrogen vehicles. And one thing that I remembered as I was thinking about this podcast was buildings, all too easy to forget. We think, or I think of heavy process industries, oil, gas refining, petrochemical, and we just naturally think about the manufacturing process because it is so energy intensive. However, we often forget that all of those facilities also have buildings. Now buildings are responsible for a significant portion of carbon emissions because of their energy use for heating, cooling, electricity. And so while we can electrify the buildings using sort of electric heat pumps for heating and cooling, energy efficient appliances, efficient lighting, all of those help reduce emissions. We are now seeing the buildings themselves becoming smarter. So just like we spoke about digitalization in improving safety, how using analytics, artificial intelligence, machine learning to improve production operations, you can apply the same for buildings. Why? Smart buildings use sensors. Sensors produce data, collect the data, analyze it. You can now see trends, patterns. You can make key decisions. You can take actions based on the situation. In fact, smart buildings can actually do that for you. They can adjust the heating or the air conditioning or the lighting based on how many people are in the building, where they are, what they're doing. So this all leads to more efficient energy use. The buildings themselves can also help to transform some of the emissions and energy consumption through efficiency. And I could extend that even to our own homes today. Now, of course, there are always challenges as we move to electrification. There's the need for an adequate infrastructure. We need to change some of the consumer behavior. There is a cost, obviously, associated transitioning to it. But with proper planning, proper investment, electrification is going to be an intrinsic key part to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and combat climate change.
0: So you're still creating the desired effect in making, say, so gasoline, but the way it is produced, it's also helping the environment. So, But has the technology changed so much that we can switch over energy sources now than it was possible to do, say, five or 10 years ago?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So let's just stick with gasoline for a minute as an example. So obviously, to produce gasoline, we require a significant amount of energy. Producing gasoline in a way that is now more environmentally friendly is a challenge, but there are ways to do that. Let me give you an example. The production process itself. Advanced production processes can be used to reduce emissions. For example, some refineries are using catalysts to produce gasoline that has a much lower sulfur content. So that therefore reduces emissions when the gasoline itself is burned. Carbon capture and storage, we've been speaking about this for a long time, but the technology can be used to capture those carbon dioxide emissions from the gasoline production process and store them back underground. So that has a part to play again in reducing the greenhouse emissions associated with the production of the gasoline. We're seeing a a lot of work and investment going in repurposing some of those existing production assets to be more focused on processing biofuels. So another way to reduce the impact of gasoline is to blend it with biofuels made from renewable sources. Could be corn, could be sugarcane. Compared to traditional gasoline, It reduces the greenhouse effect because now we're using biofuels that, yes, they vary depending upon the feedstock that's used, but they change the chemical process that can therefore change the outcome, which is emissions. And of course, in that gasoline production goes for granted without, you know, to say that renewable energy sources, wind, solar power, they can provide the energy that again, in turn, to drive the production processes reduce the emissions with that production. If I take a moment, Greg, and just expand it outside of gasoline for a minute, we're seeing a lot more happening. So let me take a couple of examples, ethylene crackers and the electrification of ethylene crackers. Now, cracking furnaces are not new, but they are one of the largest CO2 emission sources in the whole of the petrochemical value chain steam crackers have to reach temperatures of 850 degrees C in order to break down the naphtha into the olefins and the aromatics that are used as building blocks in that chemical supply chain. So to reduce the emissions from steam cracking, the cracking heaters will shift from fuel-based to electric heat sources. So you'll start to hear things about electrified furnaces. I saw a recent example, three major chemical companies working together on the electrification of the furnaces as part of the cracking process. They estimate that if they can scale that up, they can eliminate 90, 90, 9-0, 90% of the emissions from the very heart of that chemical's processing. And then let me add to that as well: steam turbines. Steam turbines with electric motors. Now, you look at these world-scale steam crackers, they all utilize steam turbines for the major compressors. So, charge gas compressors, propylene refrigerant compressors, binary refrigerant. The electrification of those major compressors is actually a viable option today. Now, Not just the compressors and electrifying them, but we're also seeing advances in the gas turbines themselves. So, even if they're not going to be electrified, there's an organization that's developed advanced combustion techniques that allows greater fuel flexibility in turbines and the ability to burn a higher percentage of hydrogen. Hydrogen is a fuel source for those turbines. So, that allows greater turndown, lower NOx emissions, increased ramping. So, In terms of switching to these alternative energy sources, there have already been significant advances over the past five to 10 years. Solar and wind have become more cost effective. They've become more efficient. They're more competitive with fossil fuels like gasoline that you mentioned. So that's why we've seen a much faster and greater adoption rate. Also coupled to that is the development of the energy storage technology itself. That's made it easier then to integrate renewable energy sources into the grid and then supply that demand if and when it's needed. So there are still challenges, again, from moving away from fossil fuel, but that change is already happening.
0: Well, that leads me to the next question, and you kind of answer it, Um, you know, as I said earlier, fossil fuels aren't going away today. They're going to be here for a little bit. But when do you see this energy transition truly taking hold and things really changing, not just a little bit, but, you know, kind of taking more of the majority?
1: Yeah. So moving from sort of proof of concept and prototypes to mass yeah. production and accelerating growth. Exactly. That's already happening. I mean, yeah, let's park solar and wind for a minute because I think the adoption rate's there. But let me talk about mass hydrogen production. I mean, that is already transitioning towards megawatts and gigawatts. couple of examples here in Europe, Shell Energy and Chemicals. Now, they were backed by a European consortium. So they had European Commission funding to help them so that they could accelerate hydrogen production which then contributes to Europe's goal. One of our previous podcasts, Greg, we spoke about the cost of change. And again, that's coming from a more governmental level and a country level, not just from an organisation funding itself. But back in, this was, I think, July 2021, this was one of their operations. It was in Germany and it was producing green hydrogen. At the time... This was Europe's largest polymer electrolyte membrane, PEM, that's used in the hydrogen electrolyzer. And this was able to produce renewable electricity, produce up to 1,300 tons of green hydrogen a year. Now, obviously, they don't want to stop there. So the next step is even bigger. They're going to move into hundreds of megawatts. And obviously, this journey won't stop there. It will move to gigawatts. I would just like to just add a little a comment. There are different types of electrolyzers and different processes, but PEM, the polymer electrolyte membrane, seems to be the way forward. It's more compact. It's suited to working with those renewable energy sources because they operate dynamically using varying loads of electricity. So that means they can work. It allows them to operate better with wind and solar energy generation as they're cheaper. So that seems to be the way to go and go forward. But it's not just Shell in Europe. I could give you examples. The Egyptian Basic Industries Corp, they're building a 100 megawatt green hydrogen facility to convert hydrogen into green ammonia. Baofeng Energy in China, they're building a 30 megawatt hydrogen electrolyzer. Air Liquide in Canada, a 20 megawatt one. Shell in Changjiku, have an integrated green hydrogen hub, where that's an example of commercial scale electrolyzers. So alongside the 30 megawatt one operated by Baofeng Energy, they also have a 10 megawatt one operated by High Power. So we're seeing this collaboration and energy hubs coming together to meet the needs of the country. South Korea, Hanwha Energy, Now, they've been on the hydrogen bandwagon for a while, but in 2020, they commissioned, what was at the time, the largest industrial hydrogen fuel cell power plant in the world, 50 megawatts. So that was used, the first to use only hydrogen that was recycled from the petrochemical manufacturing process itself. So... The energy transformation, yeah, it's taken hold and it is changing and it is changing fast.
0: So now we've established that electrification and hydrogen are, are moving forward. And as you say, you're moving fast.
1: How does all of that affect the safety area? So when you say safety, Greg, I'm going to break that into two categories. I'm going to break that into sort of occupational safety and process safety. If I look at renewables, solar wind, tidal hydro, the safety impact of those is more occupational and electrical and what I mean for that working at heights lifting trips falls if you look at solar probably the risk is fires from electrical faults hazards that can potentially expose to a variety of hazards you know arc flashes flash burn blast hazards electric shocks The photovoltaic cells are actually normally up high to get the sun. So you've got the risk of working at heights, falls, thermal burns. So they're more occupational risks with solar, wind and wind farms, noise, weather conditions, vibration, electrical, even things like, you know, confined space working. Tidal brings in adverse weather conditions, high tidal ranges, you know, sea states, currents the corrosion and the integrity of the assets. So they are more sort of occupational. All of them also have an electrification element because they're producing electricity, which brings the risk of shock, burns from contact with live parts, exposure to arcing, fire from faulty equipment, overloading, incorrect grounding, defective insulation. So those are really more risks to people But if I move to the process safety, and let's focus on hydrogen that we were talking about, like any fuel, hydrogen, gasoline, natural gas, it can be dangerous under the right conditions, which is why all fuels should be treated with care, and that includes hydrogen. Now, hydrogen has a wide range of flammable concentrations in air and a lower ignition energy than gas or natural gas. So to trigger the ignition of hydrogen, it takes 15 times less energy than for natural gas. So you don't need as much of an ignition source to cause that. The combustion characteristics are different from natural gas. The flame speed in hydrogen combustion is four to five times greater than that of natural gas. So it's approximately 1.7 meters per second for hydrogen, but in natural gas, it's a lot slower, it's 0.4. The rate at which the flame occurs is different. And if you are using electrolyzers, they also have inherent risks for production. So it could be freezing water in the stack. It could be fracture of say the pressurized pipes or the compartments, breakages in the membrane storage concerns. So yes, both renewable and hydrogen bring a set of both occupational and process safety risks.
0: Now that's now we're talking about the safety risks, but then let's bring it to another uh, level here and let's talk about how does this change the uh, safety professional's job? I mean, I'm sure there's going to be some kind of technological changes or equipment changes that will be going on with all of this energy transition. So how will this change the safety
1: professional's job? The good news and the bad news is it does change it. It does change it now, but not in a significant way. Like I've said, the use of hydrogen and managing hydrogen risks and hazards and conditions is not new. So we need to take that experience As hydrogen moves away from a production processes, which is where our understanding was and starts to now become more widespread, now things like transportation, storage, distribution, point of sale, people's exposure to hydrogen, that brings a new dynamic. So we need to make sure that we take the necessary steps to control and mitigate those hazards. And for us as safety engineers, that all starts right at the very beginning with the hazard identification. But these new hazards need to be identified and they need to be understood and risk reduction needs to be put in place. Make sure that the hazards are fully controlled. And what I mean by that is the use of these electrolyzers is going to become more common. And that involves very high electrical demands. So Electrical safety, the hazard, including an e hazard an electrical hazard and operability study, that becomes an intrinsic part of that front end. A lot of the electrolyzers that we're seeing today, they're be sort of being in self-contained equipment houses or containers or buildings, which is great. But what it does mean is if there is a hydrogen release from the process, then the concentration can very quickly rise because it's contained. And then if you think about the potential ignition source and arc flash and you think about the low ignition point, that all then makes those potentially high-risk, high-concentration areas. So as production capacity scales up, the HAZOPs become more important and inherent safe design, blast radiuses, occupancy rates come into effect. Now, if I take that and then extend that, so as hydrogen becomes more increasingly used as a fuel source, for example, those vehicles we spoke about in China at the Olympics, ships, buses, trains, they're all going to require refueling. So this is going to bring people into much closer contact with hydrogen in their daily lives. So the number of people, the proximity, the frequency, the duration, these become very important when we look at the risks, and of course, what's our biggest vulnerability? It's the fact that humans do unpredictable things, which brings another challenge in itself.
0: Yes, to it so understand
1: the risks, understand that, then bring in this new dimension. Safety reporting, Greg, has always been a highly manually intensive requirement for the regulators for safety reporting, compliance reporting, corporate reporting, regulators, insurers, you name it. These new hazards are not going to be exempt from that. So the regulation and control of new hazards, you're going to need a competent authority, a CA, on your team, because that's a difficult task as regulations and standards. And I know we'll talk about those just a little later. They're evolving as hydrogen technology matures. So the reporting aspect should not be underestimated and then the management systems the process safety management systems itself they may be impacted by these changes in operating procedures or maintenance activities as points of sale and distribution come into effect so if history is anything to go by most major hazardous events are either directly caused by or made worse by poorly managed changes to processes and systems. I think it builds on what we already know, but it just puts more of a load on us as safety engineers.
0: As you were saying, this whole transition has started. And while it may not be full scale, it has started. And Are you hearing anything from the safety folks about these potential changes? Because change is often difficult. So, I mean, is anybody giving any or pushing back on this? Or I guess in the end, they don't have much of a choice. But, you know, are you seeing any kind of pushback?
1: Yeah, you know, Greg, there's always a choice. And sometimes doing nothing is a choice and can be seen as an easy choice, but it's not necessarily a safe choice or a safe option. What I will say is this whole hydrogen sector, it's a very fast-paced emerging sector. They don't have, or it doesn't have, the luxury of time on its side. It can't afford to sit and wait, and we all know that time is the enemy. One serious safety incident, hydrogen incident, could really derail the growth of that entire sector. And I will say we are already seeing hydrogen safety-related incidents. Just a few examples. There was a hydrogen explosion at a power plant. It was a 585-megawatt coal-fired, supercritical power plant. It caused one fatality, injuries to 10 people, significant damage to equipment and buildings. And it was caused during a routine delivery of hydrogen So when a hydrogen relief device failed, it allowed the contents of the hydrogen tank to escape, and it was ignited by an unknown source. There was also an explosion at a hydrogen gas production facility in Korea. The reasons are not known. Luckily, in this particular case, it was not catastrophic. Three people were injured, but the impact seriously damaged the buildings, And there was a third one, which was at um, a power plant in South Africa. They had a hydrogen leak that caused significant damage to the facility. And what happened was they were using hydrogen. They were displacing hydrogen with carbon dioxide and air for the purposes of trying to find an external leak. Now, while they were performing the activity, air was introduced in the generator at a point where hydrogen was still present in sufficient quantities that then created an explosive mixture, which ignited and resulted in an explosion. In this case, it looks like there was a deviation from the procedure for carrying out this activity. So when we spoke just a moments ago about does the role and safety and does it change? Yes, it has an impact on operations, maintenance and procedures not just on the systems themselves. So as safety professionals, we need to get ahead of this curve. We need to learn from the past, apply our domain expertise. Don't repeat the sins of the past. Why? Because the renewable sector may not yet fully understand what it takes to keep an asset operating safely and then safely for 10, 20, 30 or more years. That's experience that we have, learnings that we have that we need to apply to hydrogen and quickly.
0: Now, you mentioned standards earlier, and I, and this industry is focuses on standards. How do current safety standards play with this type of energy transformation? Will new ones need to enter the scene, or do we have current standards that could apply?
1: Let's start with the good news. The good news is that, as we've said, the use of hydrogen is not new in high hazard industries. So we can use the same safety standards, tools, techniques. So IEC 61508, IEC 61511, ISAS 84, those safety lifecycle standards, they are all very applicable. Now they are constantly being reviewed and updated. So I would fully expect that they would be updated to keep pace with these technology developments and the new challenges that they bring. But as hydrogen starts to find its way to a more commercial audience, the storage, the distribution, the point of sale, as people meet hydrogen in their daily lives, it will bring a different set of challenges. Just last week, I saw a Hydrogen Safety Code of Practice from the Petroleum and Gas Inspectorate in Australia. So not a standard yet, but a sort of a directive. This was a consolidated framework for current fuel gas requirements that can apply hydrogen. Now, some of the requirements need legislative amendment. While it's not statutory, Current legislation continues to apply, but amendments are being progressed and are subject to government processes and approvals. So this runs far and wide. The good news again, there are some fantastic resources out there available, Greg. I've registered with the Centre for Hydrogen Safety. It's run by the Associate, AI Chemie, the Association of Chemical Engineers. It's a global non-profit organization and this group are dedicated to hydrogen safety best practices safe handling use of hydrogen across the energy provides a common communication platform there are some fantastic resources if you do nothing else other than after listening to this podcast I cannot recommend enough if you want to know more about hydrogen go online AI Chem E and the Center for hydrogen safety but standards not just hydrogen, Let's just touch on renewables for a minute. So, Greg, in the US, the OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, they have standards that apply to the construction and maintenance of wind turbines. The requirements for protection, electrical safety. So, they're already there. Similarly, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory they've developed a set of recommended practices for the installation and operation of solar. So again, electrical, fire, emergency response. Some organisations have developed specific safety standards for renewable energy. So the International Electrotechnical Commission, the IEC, they have a set of standards for wind turbines that cover the issues, including, again, electrical, structural, environmental. There are already a number of standards in place for the renewables. So I think really it's more just applicable to the growth and expansion in hydrogen that we need to keep an eye on.
0: Now, as I said before, the word change is often perceived and it's very difficult for people to take. And it's often conceived as a being a bad thing. But energy transformation is not a bad thing. And but what kind of fears in your mind will safety professionals worry about the most?
1: We love to worry. (laughs) I think the biggest concern is time and, and the incredible speed of change that is happening. I mean, time can be your friend and your enemy, but we never have enough of it. Mass production is scaling up at such a fast pace. We can't afford to get it wrong, not just for now, but for the life of the operating plants. It's intrinsic in everybody meeting those sustainability targets and goals With so many new entrants coming into the market, many may not be aware of not just what it takes to make a safe facility, but to keep those assets operating safely, being maintained safety throughout that life. And then, of course, you're going to add to that the regulators, the insurers. There's going to be a lot more moving piece parts to satisfy. So the biggest concern for me is time and the speed of change that is happening. I think the next area of concern is, as we move towards this combination of renewables and hydrogen, It's the resiliency of that electrical supply. There is going to be greater dependency on those electrical feeds and supplies. The last thing that we need is a spurious trip on a high-risk or high-hazard production plant because of a loss of power. I mean, that brings safety concerns. It brings flaring events. It brings having to restart a plant, which was, we all know, is when we're at the highest risk and potential for the harm is greatest. In fact, Greg, I think I was reading one of your articles back in February, which was a refinery in the US where, of all things, rain, environmental Mm -hmm. conditions effectively led to a series of flares and a fire because water breached the building with the electrical switch gear. That resulted in an electrical ground fault. The ground fault then activated the safety systems. The safety systems then shut down the electrical bus, and that then shut down one of the two cogem plants. And so the loss of power to half of the MCCs and then the loss of power, of primary power to the control room, produced a Forget the production impact for a minute, but the safety consequence of flaring and restart was significant. So I think resiliency of the electrical and the supply is going to be key. I think one of the biggest challenges that we're seeing is around, just around simply the number of safety professionals that there now are. Not just in traditional segments that we think of, you know, high hazard oil and gas, petrochemical refining, LNG, But people and safety are being pulled into other sectors. Think about self-driving cars and automotive, the firmware, the software sectors. As more software is being used in these commercial products, that has a greater safety consequence. So those safety professionals, so the good news is if you're a safety professional, you're actually going to be in more demand, not less demand. And that brings a new level of Expertise, and we touched on this in one of the other podcasts, Greg. You know, the need for our engineers to not just be automation or safety professionals, but they're going to need to be process engineers. They're going to need to be data analysts because they need to understand interdependencies between the process, the electrical, and the auto domains. And I do think the last point is again, I'm going to keep saying this the potential risks from electrification. As more equipment becomes, and I'll call it super electrical, we spoke about those furnaces that are going to become more Mm -hmm. heat-based rather than fuel-based, you know. That means that the people who have to maintain those and update those are going to have more exposure to potential electrical risks. So electrical safety is going to become more important in daily operations and maintenance activities. And we have touched on some of these
0: already, but, you know, what are some of the best practices safety professionals can look at to
1: ensure a smooth energy transition? You're right. We've touched on a lot of them. So I'll just pick a few, if I may. I think the key takeaway here is hydrogen is happening. Like any fuel, hydrogen can be hazardous under the right conditions it's important that we all understand the unique properties that hydrogen brings. The good news is, as I say, it's not new. We have been using it in petrochem refining and chemical, but we've been using it more in the manufacturing process. Now what we're seeing is this move, move towards industrial scale production, the transportation, the storage, the consumption. So subscribe to that hydrogen safety or other communities. There are more emerging I think we need to be much more aware and hydrogen savvy in our own knowledge and skill sets. The use of electrolyzers is happening. That involves very high electrical demands. So whether we like it or not, we we traditionally have always kept electrical and automation apart. Never tell the two meet. Well, unfortunately now, whether we like it or not, those two worlds and domains are moving closer together, not just from a safety perspective, but from an operational perspective, and a maintenance perspective as well. So I think electrolyzers and electrical safety is going to be more intrinsic. And it's something that we as safety professionals need to look at in our skill set. We've spoken many times about digitalization and digital, it's happening, embrace it. What I will say is a couple of things. You can have digital twins, not just for the process, but also for the electrical side. So when I spoke about doing your HAZOP and extending that to an e-HAZOP and looking at the electrical and the process systems together, now you can use those digital twins, those simulators to do what if and see correlation between electrical and process. Some of the process simulation tools also have libraries. so. Aviva, part of Schneider Electric, their process simulation, they actually have a greenhouse gas calculation library. So again, you can start to see very early in the design process what potential emissions consequences could be based upon some of your design changes. And I think, again, and I apologize if I'm repeating myself, but this transition to electrification, we really have to consider at the HAZOPs, at the front end engineering, the electrical initiating causes, consequences, also during the re-HAZOP activities as well, Greg. So as plant modifications are going to happen in the future, as replacing fuel based with electrical equipment, that's gonna have an impact on our re-HAZOPing and understanding our risks.
0: Well, Steve, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. That's about all the time we have today. So for Steve Olliot, this is Greg Hale saying thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Today with ISS Source.
1: Thanks, Greg.